Please open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 2. Our scripture reading will be Luke 2, verses 22 to 35. Hear the word of the Lord. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses... They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. His father and mother marveled at what had been said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. A sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we do thank you for today. Father, we thank you that we can still gather together here in person. Uh, Lord, we thank you for our brothers and sisters who are at home uh, joining us uh, in their living room. Lord, we just pray that as we set this time now aside to sit under your word preached, Father, we pray that you would have your way with us. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning. Lord, I pray that You would give us receptive hearts, and Father, that you would lead us into living our lives in accordance with your word. Oh, Father, we do thank you for the first advent of Christ, Lord. We just think in terms of, Lord, our need, our plight as sinners, and your kindness in sending your Son, Jesus And Lord, I pray that we would be a people that live each and every day in light of this glorious reality. Father, I pray that we'd be a people that are so deeply affected by Christ, His coming, His life, His death, His resurrection, Lord, that we can't help but to tell others about it. Father, I pray for us as a church, I pray that we would grow in being bold with the gospel. I pray that you would help us to be a church that proclaims the gospel, certainly every time we gather, but as we go out 
as we interact with our neighbors and our co-workers, our friends, our family members. I pray that you would give us a boldness for Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to use us, Lord, to see the gospel spread in this area. Father, we do thank you for other churches in the area that are preaching Christ. Lord, we think of First McKinney. Thank you for Pastor Sam Holm and the way that you've been working through Sam and the leadership there at that church. And we just pray that you would continue to lead them and strengthen them. Give them wisdom in leading through this pandemic. Father, help them to be faithful to the gospel. Lord, continue to lead Sam as he seeks to preach faithfully, seeking to preach expositionally, Lord. I just pray that you would lead that ministry for your glory. Father, we do thank you for the joy of gospel partnerships. We thank you that we can partner with Andy Johnson and his family as they are planting a church. Lord, uh, we pray that you would protect them. We pray that you would keep them safe. We pray that you would just use that church for the gospel to flourish in the area that you've sent them. Lord, we thank you now for the rest of our time together. We pray that you would lead, guide, and direct everything we do for your glory, and we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it'd be hard to imagine a historical figure more polarizing than the Lord Jesus. To be sure, there's a way that you can look at it and say that Jesus is the great uniter, right? You think in terms of through Christ, Jews and Gentiles coming together. You think of how through Christ, certain relationships throughout the years have been reconciled. But there's also the reality that He is indeed the proverbial line drawn in the sand in so many relationships, and thus a divider, right? With some lining up on one side, while others stand on the other. For some, Jesus is most to be adored. He is worthy of our worship. He is the one that we will follow. While for others, to even mention His name is to be an issue. We're in the Christmas season now, time of year where as Christians we celebrate His coming, what we call Advent. But of course, we know that people are divided this time of year, right? I mean, just think about what you are and are not allowed to say and do at various places of work. Poke your head in the local, the local schools around the area. There's a division over Christ. And none of this should really be a surprise if we take the Bible seriously. I mean, the Bible teaches from the very beginning of Christ's life that it would be this way. In fact, in our last of the songs of the nativity, Simeon's song that we're looking at today, we'll see Simeon look down at the baby Jesus and prophesy that he will be both the great uniter and the great divider. He would bring the one, he would be the one who brings glorious salvation to some and eternal frightening judgment for others. So, turn with me, if you're not already there, to Luke chapter 2. 
Luke chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the text that I read for us a moment ago, and I want to begin by rereading the first few verses. So, Luke 2, I'll start by reading 22 through 26 again. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that is Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Two things sort of set the scene right here in these first few verses. First, we see that Jesus' parents take the baby Jesus up to the temple to fulfill the law. Now, there's a lot we could say about this if we had time because the Gospel of Luke goes and shows how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, and we see that even his parents taking the steps to fulfill the law is certainly important. Save that for another sermon. The second thing that helps us by way of introduction to this song is that we're introduced to the man Simeon, and we do need to linger here for a few minutes. We want to notice that we're told Simeon is righteous and devout. He's obviously a priest, right, because he's serving in the temple, but he's a good priest. And if you read the New Testament, you know that can't be said for a lot of them. Uh, According to Scripture here, we're told Simeon is righteous. It's probably best understood in the fact that this guy faithfully keeps the law. And we're told that he's devout, right? He's got a single-minded focus on Yahweh that I think comes through in this passage, so, so this is a man that we would probably refer to as a, a godly man. This, this is a man whose life is all about serving his Lord. And in his service, this man Simeon has been faithfully waiting on God. It would seem that if a friend came in and said, Simeon, what are you doing these days? What, do you, what have you been up to, man? He'd probably say something like, I'm waiting on God. Yes, 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 there's other things that I do throughout the day, but each and every day I wake up hoping, thinking, perhaps, maybe, today might be the day. See, we're told that, like we saw with Elizabeth and Zechariah, we're told here that the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon, and the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not see death until the consolation of Israel would arrive upon the scene. And this is important at two critical points. And first, we're about to see Simeon look down at the Lord Jesus and speak, right? He's going to prophesy when he, when he speaks. And so, we see that the text is helping us to see he's not making up this on his own. What he's going to say is very important, and what he's going to say, he's led of the Spirit in saying The second critical point we need to see here is that the Holy Spirit led him to wait, to look for, to be watchful for the consolation of Israel or the long-awaited Messiah. And I'm tying these two things together because they're linked in the text. In verse 25, you read that Simeon was righteous and devout and that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel and that the Holy Spirit was upon him. And then in verse 26, we see that the Holy Spirit revealed to him that he would not see death until he had seen 
the consolation of Israel, or here, the Lord's Christ. So, so he's waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit reveals to him that he will not die before he sees this come about through the Messiah. See, the word consolation itself just means comfort. And in the Old Testament, this idea of consolation, the comfort of Israel, is linked to the coming Messiah who faithful Israelites were looking forward to as the one who would bring this comfort to God's people. You might think of Isaiah 40, which is a text more than likely Simeon is drawing from here. The text says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And of course, if you kept reading in that passage, it goes on to speak of the coming comforter who would come with might and rule his people, who would lovingly tend his flock like a shepherd and carry them in his bosom. And we know the whole Bible was always pointing in this direction. I mean, this goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They sinned against God. And at that time, God's perfect world was broken, if you will. At that time, sin entered into the world. Death entered into the world. Adam and Eve were part of the curse. They were kicked out of the garden. And that special relationship with God was, was, was broken, right? Life was now hard. They lived in a sinful, fallen, broken world. They would die. But even there in Genesis 3, God made them, and as it's recorded for us, certainly us, a glorious promise The promise is that one from the seed of the woman, very specific language, from the seed of the woman would one day come and crush the head of the serpent. And and if you read the book of Genesis, so much of the book of Genesis is a tracing of this seed of the woman, right? It's this this lineage. Oh yeah, there's all sorts of stories and, and some of them very fascinating, quite frankly. But the key point in this book is that this, this seed is going to go through people like Noah. It's going to go through key figures like Abraham. And through Abraham, obviously, the promise, it's conti- it continues to develop. And it's going to go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. It takes a very strange turn at Judah. But by the end of the book of Genesis, it's clear the seed of the woman, this lineage that we're following, will go through Judah. And then you come to a guy named King David later in the Bible, and it's clear he's from the line of Judah. And and then you hit a passage like 2 Samuel 7, where the Lord tells David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I'm going to raise up your seed. See, it's drawing on that same kind of language. Raise up your seed or your descendant, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. and He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, that's an expansion of the promise, right? That helps you to understand more what's going on. And, and if you remember the books of Kings and Chronicles in the Old Testament, by the way, if we're coming close to a new year, this is why I always encourage people to think about reading through the whole Bible. I think we gravitate towards our favorite books and read them over and over again. But these books like Kings and Chronicles that have some tough genealogies that are hard to follow are very important. And we remember that after King David, there's this continued decline in godliness of the kings in Israel. 
After Solomon, the nation actually even splits in two, right? Israel to the north, Judah to the south, and with the exception of a few bright spots like Hezekiah or Josiah in Judah, the kings of Israel and Judah were increasingly wicked, and so then were the people who followed. And thus, in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom is wiped out by the Assyrian Empire. And then in 586 B.C., the the climax of the Lord's judgment on the people of Israel comes when the Babylonians come in and they sack Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, and they carry God's chosen people off into exile. And by now you're probably thinking, I thought this was a Christmas sermon. You know, thanks for the history lesson, but what's the connection? Well, the connection is this is, this is vital for our understanding of Christmas. Certainly, if we're going to understand the first Christmas, precisely because you still have all of these promises of the coming seed who would be a blessing to all the nations hanging out there unfulfilled, right? You think of the promise of 2 Samuel 7. At that point in Luke 2, still hanging out there unfulfilled. Who is this one who's going to build a house for his name and establish the throne of his kingdom forever? Certainly, after 2 Samuel, the prophets start picking up on this language. You think of Isaiah 9, the great Christmas passage, unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David, right? Son, David, you got this connection to 2 Samuel 7, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And these are glorious, right? These are magnificent promises. But there's this huge mountain of a problem, and it's this. At that point, again, Think of Luke 2, where they are in salvation history. At that point, God's people are sitting in exile. Yes, Babylonian captivity is over, and yes, they're in Jerusalem, but they're not in charge, right? If you go back to our Daniel series, they are in the middle of that fourth amazing, strong world power that was prophesied in Daniel, and so now they're under Rome. They're under Rome's thumb. They're under Rome's tyranny, and there's obviously no son of David sitting on any throne in Jerusalem, and so the people of Israel rightly began to wait. They began to look forward to this seed of David, this future eternal son, this root of Jesse, as Isaiah 11 says, or the servant of the Lord from Isaiah 40 through 66, who would come and establish his kingdom forever. You see, those who were faithful, those who believed in Yahweh, who trusted in his promises, were waiting for God to finally come and make good on these promises. They were waiting for the consolation of Israel, which is why our friend Simeon here, who is said to be righteous and devout, is waiting. He's waiting to set his eyes on the very one who would fulfill these glorious promises and bring comfort to God's people. He was waiting to look upon the Lord's Christ, the Messiah, who would come and fulfill these promises, the one who would come and rescue his people from their bondage to their oppressors, to rule over them forever and ever. Now, all that being said, 
We've said before that most of Israel was looking for something along these lines, but they really missed it because they politicized these promises and were actually waiting for the wrong thing, right? They had sort of created their own version of the Messiah, which, by the way, should always be a warning to us that we better understand Jesus for who He is, not who we want Him to be. And the vast majority of the Jews at that time were waiting for a political Messiah, the second coming of King David, who would literally come in, whopping and a whooping, and, you know, drive the Romans out and set up His earthly kingdom right then, right there, and make all of their earthly dreams come true. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus' reign as king was not going to come in by war. Jesus' reign would not be brought in through violence or world domination like many expected. No, this eternal reign of King Jesus would be brought in through humility and pain, through a baby born in a stinky old manger for the purpose of living a perfect life and being sacrificed on the cross for his people. And through the Holy Spirit, Simeon obviously had some sense of this. Look back at verses 27 to 32. He came in the Spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now... You are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Jesus' parents, seeking to fulfill the law, they they, they bring Jesus to the temple, fulfilling the law of the firstborn, and Simeon, led by the Holy Spirit, takes the baby Jesus into his arms, and he looks down on the child and says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. And of course, this is referring to the promise that he wouldn't see death until he saw the Lord's Christ. And so he says, now you're letting your servant depart in peace because, because my eyes have seen your salvation. Don't miss Simeon's complete satisfaction in God here, right? If God's most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him, then God's glory was absolutely on display at that moment. Here, this old priest who's been waiting and waiting to see God's Messiah, to see the comfort of Israel, now holds Him in His arms, and he's completely satisfied, so satisfied he's ready to die. In other words, so satisfied he needs nothing else. He has no other goals that he must accomplish before he dies. Nothing else he needs to see. The bucket list is exhausted. He has now seen the Lord's Messiah. Simeon looks upon the baby Jesus and says, I'm ready to die because I need absolutely nothing else in my life for I've seen the Messiah. See, the birth of Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas is the very center of God's salvation for His people. It's the inauguration of God's amazing rescue mission. The new order has broken in. God's eternal plan of redeeming His people for our sin was inaugurated at the incarnation. And right here, 
Jesus is just eight days old, Simeon, empowered by the Holy Spirit, sees him as this Savior that God has prepared. And not only that, Simeon's clear that Jesus would be a great uniter as he came for both Jews and Gentiles. The exegesis of this sentence is important to understand. In verse 30, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. The that in verse 31 is a relative clause expanding on salvation. So, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And the all peoples here in context is both Jews and Gentiles because verse 32 goes on to explain that. In verse 32, he says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And it would seem the best way to take this is like you see if you have an ESV where uh, revelation and glory are parallel to one another, both of which are modifying the word light. So this salvation is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a light for the glory of your people Israel. So let's just consider each one of them for a minute. Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. In Isaiah 42, 6 through 7, which is the text that Simeon seems to be picking up on, we read, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you and will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. This idea of Jesus as a light to the nations is certainly picked up on in the New Testament, we think of John chapter 1, verse 9, where Jesus, we're told, is the true light coming into the world who enlightens every man, or you might say enlightens every kind of man, both Jew and Gentile. In other words, this Savior is not just for the people of Israel, but He's also the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that one from that line, one from the seed of the woman, would be a blessing to all of the nations. And that said, our text tells us that Jesus is not just a light of revelation for the Gentiles, but He was also a light for the glory of Israel. And again, this statement's almost certainly an allusion back to the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 6, we see how Jesus is a light for the glory of the people of Israel. And there we read, arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar. Your daughters will be carried in their arms. Then you will see and be radiant, and your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will, come, will cover you, young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba will come, listen, and they will bring gold and frankincense, should sound familiar, and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. Right? Jesus is not only the light of revelation for Gentiles, He's the light for the glory of the people of Israel. And perhaps the clearest way Jesus is the light for the glory of the people of Israel is that 
Jesus comes through the people of Israel. He comes through the Jewish people. Salvation comes through the Jews. It's God's plan of redemption. Jesus came through the nation of Israel. That's where that line was going through. So God fulfills his glorious promises to Israel through Christ. So for our purposes this morning, we want to be clear that Jesus is the Savior of all types of people, both Jews and Gentiles. And right from the very beginning of his life, we see Simeon with a clear revelation that Israel's Messiah would be the Savior, not only of Israel, but of the Gentiles as well. And again, he didn't come to save us from physical tyranny of a physical oppressor. He didn't come as a cosmic genie to give us all of our wants. No, he came for a much greater purpose. He came to save us from spiritual slavery. He came because we were enslaved to our own sin. He came, as Matthew 1 says, to save us from our sin. He came to die on the cross and take the punishment of all who would trust in him alone so that we could have fellowship with God restored. And church, this is the good news of Christmas. This is what Christmas is all about. It's not about just sort of focusing on a baby in a manger. It's about what he came to do. And when Mary and Joseph hear this, they marvel. Verse 33, they marvel. And why wouldn't they? They've just been told something staggering. Just try to put yourself in their shoes for a minute. This time, Mary and Joseph both get to hear this. And their minds have got to be just being blown. Every, every sentence, right? Their, their categories are being blown. This, this baby that they're holding, that they know had a unique birth because they understood the sort of the struggles of all of this. You're pregnant? What are you talking? I mean, they, they walked this. And, 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 and now they're being told that this child is fulfilling all of God's promises and would be the Savior now, not just of the Jews. That's all that everybody expected, but the Jews and the Gentiles? Of course they marveled. That said, Christmas isn't all warm and fuzzy. What we just looked at, that's glorious. That's sort of warm and fuzzy, right? I mean, that's just amazing and and encouraging. But we have to read it all, don't we? And see, if you understand the word salvation, you know that it means that people must be saved from something. Now, of course, there's charlatans in our day and age that basically say salvation is you're saved from sort of a life of mediocrity to this awesome life, right? Or you're saved from a life of, ah, oh, you've got decent amount of wealth to all of a sudden you're really rich. Well, that's, that's a lie from the pits of hell and total garbage, but this idea of salvation is critical. And in the Bible, salvation is always, 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 always salvation from judgment. That's salvation in the Bible. It's not salvation from, you know, a bad marriage to a good one. It's salvation from judgment. We deserve God's wrath. Salvation, when you see that word in the Bible, it's salvation from that. And see, now we get into the reality that Christmas is not only a great uniter, Jew and Gentile coming together, But it's also a great divider because there's salvation for those who believe, judgment for those who don't. Look back at verses 34 and 
5. His father and mother marveled at what was said, starting in verse 33, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Here Simeon blesses Mary and Joseph, but also lets them know this ain't going to be easy. Right? Right here, blessing them, telling them things that were just blowing their minds. They're also told, oh yeah, this is going to be hard. Now, the basic flow of these verses is honestly a little bit difficult to follow, even in the English Bible, certainly in the original, and it's because there's this parenthetical statement right in the middle, a word to Mary in verse 35. So, let's start with that. Just start with the parenthetical. Let's make sure we're clear what that's saying. Here he sort of turns, he's been speaking to both parents, and now he turns and sort of speaks directly to Mary. And he tells her that this baby that you're holding, this beautiful little child, is going to pierce your own soul. And that is almost certainly a word to mama, letting her know that you're going to experience the pain of losing a child. You're going to watch your son go through a lot not least of which a horrific death. See, right at the beginning of Jesus' life, Simeon is pointing here to Jesus' death on the cross. As he speaks to the pain, Mary is going to feel standing right there at the foot of the cross, watching her son hanging and dying on a Roman death device. So that's the parenthetical, okay? The rest of verses 34 and 35 speak of Jesus dividing people. Simeon tells Mary and Joseph that Jesus has been appointed by God for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. That's the flow when you take the parenthesis out. Okay? In other words, as I said earlier, and you know from experience, Christmas is divisive. Jesus will divide people. Some will fall because of Christ. Others will rise. People will be opposed to Him, and He will reveal their hearts toward God. You see this in John 3. In John 3, we're told this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, And the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus divides people. He exposes what's in the heart. Jesus is king which means he calls the shots. And listen, the shots that he calls are not politically correct. In fact, you might say Jesus is an equal opportunity offender, right? In our culture, he would offend liberals, and he would offend conservatives. He offends the self-righteous, and he offends those who think they can live however they good and well please. 
He is, as Scripture says, a beautiful cornerstone of God's temple to many and a stumbling block and the cause of many to fall. Jesus is and always will be loved by some, hated by others. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 16, we read, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him elsewhere, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Listen, to one, a fragrance from death to death, to another, a fragrance of life to life. You ever thought about that? To some, you are a glorious fragrance as a Christ-bearer. To others, you stink, right? Jesus divides, believer from unbeliever. And as we carry the gospel, church, we too divide. For we carry around the gospel And as we do so, just like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, to some we smell like the stench of death. We do. To others, we smell like the aroma of life. And the reason that's true is because Jesus will always be the litmus test for whether or not somebody believes in God. There's all sorts of God talk out there, right? God's great, you know, I believe in God, worship God, just, you know, watch a football game to the big man upstairs and all of that. All sorts of God talk. But what about Jesus? See, it's how you respond to Jesus, who's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him. It's, it's the way you respond to Jesus that demonstrates whether or not you know God. It's how we respond to Jesus that causes this division that causes some to fall and some to rise. And so I want to end on this as we contemplate Christmas, as we contemplate Advent, as we contemplate the first coming of Jesus and what it means for us. And I want to first speak to any who are here who might not yet be trusting in Christ. And I want you to recognize that the Scriptures make it very clear there's no like middle lane here, right? There's one of two things. There's the way of life and the way of death. There is the way of salvation and the way of judgment. And Jesus is the difference. And I would just ask you this morning, why would you choose the way of judgment? Why would you choose the way of death? I would plead with you, even this Christmas season, as we're singing songs about Jesus coming, coming to save His people, I would plead with you to look to Christ, to consider who He is, consider what He's done, consider your own sin, what the Bible says. You know, culture's got its own spin on things, but look to the Scriptures and what the Bible says about this and what the Bible says about our need for a Savior. Jesus went to the cross If we didn't need a Savior, what an overreaction by God. But it's not. So I would plead with you, look to Christ. Believe on Christ. And of course, in the Scripture, believing is more than just mental assent. The demons believe and shudder. The uh, belief, faith, true faith in the Bible is following Christ. 
I'd plead with you today, look to Jesus, follow Him. For believers, we see in the Scriptures, and we know, don't we, that Jesus both unites and divides. And I think the challenge for us is that we not shy away from this. I think we're very prone to shy away from this. Even this holiday season, think about some of the opportunities that you have, some of the unique opportunities. I I know in my neighborhood, I mean, Merry Christmas, people giving gifts back and forth, conversations that don't always happen, time with family, time with friends. I, I know this season's a bit unique, you know, with COVID, and so maybe some of the office parties aren't happening, but some still are. The point is, there's all sorts of opportunity. And the question is, will we be bold with the gospel? Will will we be bold with what Christmas is all about? Read the gospels. Jesus was never afraid to offend. So why are we? I think it's a question we have to ask. Now, let me just say, when I say that, this is an important qualification. I'm not saying we need to try to go out and be offensive, right? There's a lot of so-called Christians who are offensive, quite frankly, because they're just jerks. It's true, right? Some just try to be offensive. For, I don't know why. It's just, it's like, what's the problem? Are you just mad at everybody? Uh, read, read the Gospels. Paul, Paul wants to be winsome. He asks for prayer to be winsome. We want to be kind and gracious and patient. The Gospel offends But church, we got to turn it loose so it can do its work, right? So the challenge for us is let's not shy away from turning loose the gospel. Place it out there and let God do His work. Oh, church, this Christmas season, as we think about Christ who's come to save sinners like us, may we be gracious by sharing that same message with others so that others can experience the joy and the blessing that we have in Him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You that Your Word is true. We thank You that we do not have to sit around and guess what You are like. We thank You that Your Word gives us a right view of ourselves, Lord. We know from our own sin that we are blind to ourselves so often, but Your Word shows us who we are as sinners, who You are as holy, and how much we need Jesus, and we thank You. We thank You as we celebrate this season. We think of Jesus coming into the world, taking on flesh, living the life we couldn't live, going to the cross, paying the punishment we deserve to bear. Lord, we just thank You and we praise You. Father, we just pray that you would continue to grow us and help us to be the people you've called us to be for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.